0: But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
1: This episode of Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial
3: at tryselfemployed.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 18th, 2015. On this week's show, we're taking calls from you, the listeners, on such topics as terrible baseball players corporate stadium nomenclature, the proper time to buy championship apparel, and how we have managed to acquire so much knowledge about sports. Oh, so much knowledge, Stefan. Oh, so much. Your brain is just oozing out of your ears. Exploding. There's knowledge on the (laughs) ceiling here in the hang-up studio. Is that knowledge? I thought it was gum. (laughs) Joining me in Washington, D.C., it's knowledge oozer Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hey, Stefan.
2: Hello, Josh.
3: With us from New York is Mike Pesca.
2: My knowledgeable friend.
3: The host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. That guy knows more than just uh, sports stuff. He's a polymath. And I'm not just saying that because you're good at math. I don't, I don't want you to be. You insulted. know, it's been
2: a lifelong dream of mine to play polymath in Scrabble. It's been one of my, my quest words, my holy grail words. Unachieved goal. <laughs> Like
3: many goals in life. Are you going to say hi, Mike?
2: Yeah, I was going to, but I
1: wanted to hear about uh, Stefan's unachieved goals. Uh, second base <laughs> That's the Yankees. only one.
3: <laughs> Are there yeah. any other words on your, on your goal list? My bucket. How list? about
1: festering? You ever play festering or boil? Because as the oozer of knowledge, you're like uh, the, the knowledge boil.
2: See, boil would be good <laughs> if you could extend it to boiler plate. That would uh-huh. be a great
1: play. Yeah. Is boiler maker a word? Sure. Or, or two I'm words. guessing it's
2: a word. I once, ex- right. I once extended which to switch and then to switcheroo. That's my favorite extension. What about
1: sandwicheroo?
2: Sandwicheroo would be an excellent <laughs> brand name for your new sandwich, Pasco, for the Gist restaurants, which are yeah, going to be yeah, opening yeah. soon. I
1: have, I have a case of panini makers that aren't moving. I'm just going to rebrand them as sandwicheroos. <laughs> I'm going to pull the old sandwicheroo. I'm going down
2: to the Gist to get a sandwicheroo.
1: I'm just
3: disappointed that they didn't extend the George Michael sports machine into a power hour of sports programming with Stefan Fatsis' festering sports boil. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> like you press, Pasch- you, press, you press the boil and get NASCAR highlights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Anyway, maybe we should go to, the, go to the phones. Hello, my name is Chris Asman. I'm
0: from Seattle, Washington. I am absolutely fascinated at the level of detail and how much you know about sports, uh, especially Mike Pesca. I also listen to The Gist and find it amazing that he can do that as well. I'm just wondering how you guys know so much about sports. Thank you.
3: And Mike Pesca is also so handsome. How does he do it? <laughs> he really, he really has it all. Um, Mike Pesca, polymath. How do you, how do you do it?
1: How do I maintain this girlish figure, this youthful glow? I think it's like knowledge. So this is what I think intelligence is. It's being curious. So having a lot of interests and then the more interests you have, they increase exponentially because one interest leads to another. So it's being curious and also having good retention. The curiosity is a, a noble trait. It is a virtue. The retention is just basically a gift from God Though you can work on it a little bit. And the reason it uh, I'm interested in sports is because my father was interested in sports and my mother was interested in sports. But basically, the kids I grew up with, the guys I grew up with, my friends Lichman. John Kay, Whitney—they all knew so. Craig Jacobs—they all knew so much more about sports, I think, than I did. Well, Whitney had a Sports Illustrated subscription, so it was kind of unfair. But these were smart guys. I mean, to this day, John Kay could name every Final Four, you know, for the last twenty-five years. And he was the lead singer of Steppenwolf. So I, you know, graduate high school thinking I know a little bit about sports. Then I get to college, and I just, you know, tell you what every Final Four was in the last ten years, and somehow people were impressed. And by the way, I don't mean the teams. I mean he can name every player. So yeah, that is more you grew, impressive. You grow up, up in that hothouse environment and you have some decent retention and curiosity and you know a lot.
3: Well, sports can be a little bit forbidding, maybe not a little bit, a lot forbidding to outsiders. So if you do accumulate the knowledge, and it's similar to Mike, I was kind of drawn into it by family interest as a child, and also just because I I like numbers and So I got drawn into baseball box scores and things like that. And so if you have the knowledge starting from when you're a kid about a specific sport or about sports in general, it kind of accretes and accumulates over the years. Whereas I think it's hard for people who come into baseball as an adult. You don't understand the rules. You don't understand the history. You don't understand all the references. And so it can stop you before you really get started. And I've had the kind of tension in my Writing career because it's late, we have opportunities to write about all sorts of subjects. That's a great part about writing for a general interest magazine and I've found that it's easier for me to write about sports just because I know so much more about it, but it's sometimes or a lot of the time more fun to write about other topics, things that I don't know about and that's the fun thing about being a journalist is that you can become an expert on something you can learn your job is to learn about new things, um, but it takes longer. And so there's a tension, especially when you're working on the web and daily journalism. Do I write the thing that I know about today, or do I take a couple days to learn about something new and write about it on Friday? That is a tension. But I think, you know, I think Mike's right.
2: For me, it goes back to childhood, too. And I sort of did a little conservative estimating uh, when I saw this question got figure like when I was a kid, about 30 hours a week of my life were probably devoted to sports in one capacity or another, playing, watching, talking about, I mean, I was reading box scores in the New York Post, which my father would bring home from the city every evening you know, when I was six years old. So I would conservatively estimate that by the time I was done with high school, I had devoted around 18,000 hours to sports. Figure cut back in college a little bit. So let's say 20,000 by the end of college. I had a job for about 15 years, 14 years where I covered sports eight hours a day. You no, know, I wasn't thinking about sports all the time, but you know, watching Yankee games at night. So I'm probably guessing, probably what are we at? 40, 50,000 hours of our lives that we've devoted to sports by now? So I would say by the non-Malcolm Gladwellian figure of 10,000 hours toward expertise, all he did was popularize the 10,000 hours. He didn't invent it, people. We're well, well beyond that. So it is just the, the pure could osmosis you donate, factor. You oh, donate that, some
3: of your hours to that, needy, that needy in,
2: sports fan? That and in the internet, by the way, is why we know so much about sports.
3: The internet. We yeah. look shit up. Yeah, if you I don't, mean, know.
2: we're not. We're not. We're not spouting all of these terrific facts and figures and, and ideas here. That's true. On our own, we do get you help. You have given away our secret. Sorry.
3: All right, let's take uh, another question. Hey guys, this is Alex Wallenetz from
1: Brooklyn, New York. Um, there's been a lot of discussions of how to fix the NBA draft. One potential solution I haven't heard discussed is the system the NHL uses. Players are drafted from major juniors, but are also drafted from colleges. However, college players often stay for a few years in college after they contracted. There's discussion that the probable number two overall pick next year, the Hobie Baker winner, Jack Eichel, might stay at Boston University for an extra year. As an alumni from BU, I'm a little biased, but it might be a good way for Buffalo to continue tanking while retaining a great asset. Why couldn't the NBA draft players and allow them to stay in the NCAA? NBA players need to give younger, mid level prospects more time to
0: develop and postpone rookie contract years. Okay, I'm going to hang up and listen. Thanks
3: a lot, guys. Thank you for your question, Alex. Um, there is an issue with not giving NBA teams enough incentive to tank. We need more. We need we need to give the Sixers the ability to draft players and have them not play so they can be bad. Oh wait, the Sixers already do that with uh, Joel Embiid and Dario Saric and Nerlens Noel. Um, anyway, uh, Stefan, what do you think of of this idea? And Major League Baseball is similar thing where teams will draft a player called draft and follow. They'll draft them. And then if the player improves, then they'll sign them after another season.
2: Right. And baseball is not a long-term draft and follow. It's a year. And I think there have been proposals out there. Uh, MGo blog actually uh, has tackled this issue a couple of times, particularly regarding the NBA. And sure, why not? I mean, if we could find a way for teams to follow players... But guarantee them income, whether at the time that they are being followed or after the fact of some sort of larger contract, you know, pay their some minimum salary for the years that they're not on the team. And then but having guaranteed them a larger contract for when they do make a roster, there are issues, of course. One is the NCAA. It would require them to allow players to be paid while they're still in school, potentially. But sure, that would make sense. It would be a way to avoid a lot of things. One, one and done, which is obviously stupid and doesn't benefit the very best players. Two, it would eliminate a lot of the tension and pressure on players to know what's going to happen to them. Three, it would retain flexibility for players who are drafted and followed. And if they improve, they would get paid sooner if they, if they wound up in the NBA. But they'd go to the NBA when it was time to go to the NBA and not because they felt pressure to go to the NBA.
1: See, to me, the system works when you have a lot of players and when a draft yields, you know, a significant portion of your roster, five, six, seven guys. With the NBA, it's just one guy on your team. So there's not too many guys who, you th- who their improvement will go from not making a roster to making a roster. They just get the very best of the best that, you know. One guy on an NBA roster that's eight percent of the team. you know, if they if they take two guys in a draft, that's almost twenty percent of the team. So it doesn't the structure doesn't work as well with the NBA just because of the few guys on the team. And correct me if I'm wrong, the draft and follow usually isn't done with first round picks. And the NBA is really a one and a little bit more round draft,
3: no, you're right. Um, with baseball, it's usually done just for the benefit of the team rather than, the Player, you'll take a guy speculatively in like the 30th round. Then, if he improves, you own his draft rights. And it's done in a variant by Scott Boris, kind of famously, with number one picks in the draft where he'll hold the player out and then have them go back in the draft if they don't get a deal that they like. So, it can work both ways. But um, the NBA had this up until uh, Larry Bird in the 78 draft, he was taken by the Celtics with the sixth pick. He didn't sign immediately. He went back to Indiana State and played his final season there, and the Celtics retained his rights. They signed him. The rest is history there, but it was outlawed by the NBA after that. I just don't see how this is particularly player-friendly, I think, because of what you said, Stefan, with the difficulties of compensation while playing for the NCAA. And I think it also relieves or would relieve the NBA and the NFL of the burden, one that I think that they should carry of having development leagues of their own instead of farming out that developmental role to colleges when they kind of abrogate their responsibility and say, oh, it's a college rule. The well the doesn't, you know, except this, might, to pay them. this
2: might incentivize the NBA to establish a real minor league system and not the D-League, something that's a little bit more elaborate. I mean, the problem is competing with college basketball, that there's never been a middle place in basketball between the NBA and college. And, and look, if the NBA expanded to five or six rounds, so you'd have a larger pool of players that you could draft and follow... Some of them may choose to take their minimum salary and go play in the minor league. Some of them may choose to take their minimum salary and stay in college, but it would give players a little bit more flexibility. I mean, you have to acknowledge that, It's not as if the better players are earning that much more money in the short term. I mean, you don't really make your big money in any of the professional sports until you hit free agency. Sure, there is a quantitative difference in the rookie contract for the first picks in the NBA draft and the last picks in the second round, but ultimately the big money comes later. So if there were a better middle ground that would help end the farce of some players, some number of players staying in college just because it's the de facto minor league, then that wouldn't be a bad thing.
3: All right, let's hear from Brian from Shoreline, Washington. Brian, you're on Hang Up and Listen.
0: Uh, I'm a proud Michigan State Spartan alumni. Uh, Recently, of course, my team just made it to the Final Four. Uh, Really excited about that. I went ahead and got the Final Four shirt, not really caring if I was going to jinx the Michigan State Spartans or not really caring uh, at all. I just wanted to enjoy it with a commemorative T-shirt of some sort. It kind of brings up the question or the thought, what kind of teams are sort of above the jinx? Now looking at the NBA playoffs, what teams are in that sort of, let's go ahead and just buy the, Eastern Conference Championship show, for example. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks again. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.
1: Yeah, I I never understood. I never. thought it's the ultimate dumb impulse buy. You get out of the stadium after they clinch the wild card or after they win a round. And then you get a shirt that says, you know, Southwest Conference Champion or bracket winner or first at halftime, first half winner. Just wait. I say wait until they achieve their highest level of achievement and then buy the gear. Or... As a funny irony, eight years later, get it from the discount rack saying, hey, Kentucky, sweet 16 champion.
3: I have an LSU 2011 National Championship game uh, hoodie that was given to me that I've never worn. That was the year when LSU had one of the greatest regular seasons in modern college football history, beat Alabama in the uh, boring 9-6 game of the century, and then we're completely humiliated, 21 nothing in the national championship game. You don't want to wear that sweatshirt. There's always the opportunity for humiliation in a championship game, a championship round, and a Final Four. So what, what does it hurt uh, to wait? What's the issue? I guess if you're going to the event and you want to wear your uh-huh. Michigan State Final Four T-shirt at the Final Four, then that could be an exception. Well,
2: the other exception would be that <laughs> you, you went to the event and you want to commemorate the fact that you went to the event. I was at the 2006 wild card game. <laughs> that so was, that's awesome. a, that's was a, a great car- game. That's we a carve- lost. Out. Hey, great game, but we lost. So that's a carve out for
1: you. Carve out. Was yeah, there a wild card in a, 2006? That's quite a calling card. That's quite a conversation starter. <laughs> it is. Wait, you were there? Wait a minute. Did you have a sausage at halftime? <laughs> Go on.
2: There are no times in wild card games. I'm talking baseball. Yeah. Oh,
3: okay. It is interesting, though, that college basketball has convinced pretty much everyone that making it as one of the final four teams is the ultimate achievement when in fact it is not (laughs) there's uh, there are two more games you have to win after that and there's no kind of similar feeling of just thrill like joe madden has has made it to so many final fours as a manager like what a great manager he is
1: it turns out marty schottenheimer one of the most accomplished coaches in the nfl (laughs)
3: He's he made a lot of final fours and he made the, he made it with the Browns. Mm-hmm. To make a final four with the Browns with their like kind of you know chronic failures is a he really r- revived sports in that city.
2: I'm wearing my the guy's Marty Shoten day
1: in the final four.
3: I'm wearing my Marty Schottenheimer t-shirt. It's got a list of all his final four appearances on the back. So before you buy the shirt, you should just make sure you're aware of and study what is considered an acceptable achievement in your sport unless you want to kind of make a statement and just uh, make an argument that making the final four in the NFL for Marty Schottenheimer is is worthy of T-shirt them carve out if you've been to the game.
0: Hi, guys. This is Carrie Bauman from North Carolina. I am a librarian, and so I have a book-related question, and that is what your favorite sports books are. The two um, North Carolina themed ones that I thought of that are my favorites are To Hate Like This is To Be Happy Forever, about the Carolina-Duke rivalry by Will Blythe, and one that's about um, soccer. It's called A Home on the Field by Paul Quadros, and it's actually about the high school I attended um, and their their championship soccer team. So I was wondering if you had good book recommendations for this librarian.
2: Thanks again. Any list of best anythings is very personal. It's biased, obviously. For me, there are certain books that go back to childhood. Ball 4 by Jim Bouton, one of the first inside accounts of what it's like to be a professional athlete. It was profane and honest and hilarious. Um, Bouton was a pitcher with the Yankees and, and the Seattle Pilots in this season that he chronicled in the Houston Astros. Uh, Fall Spring by Pat Jordan, another baseball coming-of-age nonfiction memoir um, about his time in the low minors was another book I read over and over again. Babe, The Legend Comes to Life, by Robert Kramer, another book that I read as a kid that made me want to be more of a sports fan and an appreciator of sports. And of course, the Matt Christopher books, Catcher with a Glass Arm, Touchdown for Tommy were my two favorites. I bet Mike Pesca has some favorites.
1: Uh, I would put on the Pantheon Instant Replay, Absolutely. Jerry Kramer's book about yep. being with the Packers. A fan's notes, you know, sporty, more about the stylism of writing. A book I read within the last couple of years, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, Not about a game, just about a lot of things, our relationship to war, our relationship to football. That's a great book. And the two I've really been getting into are collections of essays that have just been put out, collections of the sports writing of Red Smith and W.C. Hines. Mm -hmm. They're so good. I mean, they're so good. And for a while, I was so influenced by them that I was sneaking in, Red uh, the Heinz book just recently came out, but the Red Smith book, which was edited by Dan Oakram, I was just sneaking in all these Red Smithisms in my stories. I mean, he has—he could be funny, he could be profound. He was, and and it all holds up. You know, he doesn't really write in that arch style. He just uses words really well. Love those books. Love those collections.
3: Greg Connors of the Buffalo News did a list of sports writers favorite books and I'll put a link to that on the Slate show page and the ones that I listed a couple novels on there we haven't talked about novels so far the great american novel by Philip Roth mm-hmm. is one of my favorites it's about um the worst team in baseball history the port rupert mundys and it's just really bizarre and hilarious it's not that similar to a lot of Philip Roth that you might have read if you haven't read The Great American Novel, but it's really, really fun. Uh, Semi-Tough by Dan Jenkins, incredibly profane and funny. And all of Dan Jenkins's sports novels are in a similar vein, but I think that's the best one. Um, and I also mentioned The Glory of Their Times by Lawrence Ritter. If you are interested in baseball history, it's just oral history of players from the very earliest days of baseball. And if if you're interested in history, it's just really fascinating stuff. Also, A Few Seconds of Panic, Stefan Fatsis.
0: I think Word Freak is a
3: sports book, too. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if I I would count that one. I'm going to go with A Few Seconds of Panic.
2: Nate Jackson's Slow Getting Up. Now I will add my sort of top books. I mentioned my childhood formative books. (laughs) Friday Night Lights, I think, is fair to include on any list by Buzz Bissinger. Heaven is a Playground by Rick Tallender about inner-city basketball from the 1970s in Brooklyn is brilliant, and I've read that multiple times. Soccer Books, Brilliant Orange by David Winner and Among the Thugs by Bill Buford, Brilliant Orange about the Dutch, Among the Thugs about hooliganism in England in the 1980s. Lords of the Realm by John Hellyer, History of Baseball. And I think it's it's also important to include some books about women's sports. Uh, In These Girls' Hope is a Muscle by Madeline Blaze is a fantastic account of a high school basketball team uh, from the 1990s. Uh, Great book.
3: Now time for a word from our sponsor for the week, which is QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spent for work and what you spent on yourself. It also helps take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, you know how much money to set aside for Uncle Sam and how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash hangup. Okay, let's go on to another question. My 10-year-old son, Elliot, Uh, asked me a question i thought would be good for you gentlemen he asked me if you recruited an all time in the history of baseball great team versus an all-time
0: in the history of baseball worst player team over 162 game season what would be the record that those two teams faced off
3: my name is daniel levine i'm from los angeles california thank you very much
1: Elliot, what do we mean by the all-time worst? Or, or Josh, you have to define the floor. All-time worst, like major league players, uh-huh. guys from 1890? So, I can't see how I I yes. can't see how random stiffs from 1895 could possibly get a hit off of the best pitchers. Like if we're talking about all-time greatest pitchers, you could put you're saying you could put Cy Young in for one inning, and then you could put Bob Feller in for the second inning, and then you could put Koufax in for the third. It would we'll be over a hundred
3: sixty-two game season, so you'd have to. Yeah,
1: but I don't think they'd ever get a hit. I can't see them ever getting a run. We're talking about we're talking about stiff's who played the, not stiff's. We're talking about like factory workers named Muggsy or <laughs> Dummy or Red or Chief, right? Who played with a big ball. Not Chief, ball. but all know. the
3: other all the other names. Not Chief, not Chief, but the other names. Yes.
1: Right, at a a time when it was considered poor sportsmanship not to give the fellers a good ball to hit. It's definitely 162-0. and Like, you could say random chance allows feller to walk one guy once out of 162 games. Like, just the best teams. You know what? I would would construct my roster of the best of only pitchers, and even those pitchers, you know, Bob Gibson can hit. Right? I bet the pitchers would get nine runs, ten runs a game compared to you know dummy smith
3: yeah and you're also not taking into account how bad the worst pitchers ever would be like if we are just literally saying <laughs> the worst players to ever play major, in major league, league, league baseball, baseball there was a game in 1912 where the tigers um were gonna play the a's ty Cobb had been suspended because he'd beat up a fan with a bat, as Ty Cobb did. So they just got... Oh, and his teammates were like, we're not going to play because this guy this guy was suspended for beating a fan. That's obviously not fair. So the the team had <laughs> to round stance. up just like players from around the, the local ball yard. And so they got a pitcher named Al Travers who was not even like a... Re, he was like an amateur and he gave up 24 runs in the game. So that guy would be on the team of the worst players uh-huh. ever. So this is like the caliber of player that we're talking about. And then like World War II, there were guys, um, you know, one of the guys with the a worst DRA average had one leg. Mm-hmm. So let's not... Bring us your tired, your yeah. legless. Let's make the question a little bit more interesting. So the Detroit Tigers in 2003 were 43 and 119. And so in modern, like within the last 50 or so years, that's the worst record. So if we're talking about worst players in Major League Baseball this season versus best Players in Major League Baseball this season, then they would probably be worse than forty three and one nineteen, or maybe around that. Um, and there have been a couple studies. Um, there's a concept of the replacement level player that's used a lot in, in advanced statistical analysis today. And the replacement player is this is a guy that you could just get freely available for no cost. Um, that's just kind of on the waiver wire. And FanGraphs did this, and then um, another website that I that I saw, and they found that a team of just a hundred percent replacement players would get 47 wins in a season and another study said 45 and a half. So that's about the same as that Tigers team. But that isn't taking into account that these would be playing the team of like Mike Trout, Clayton Kershaw. Mm -hmm. And so I think we'd have to knock them down. I would say that they would be like in the 30s of wins. What do you think, Mike? Does that that seem right?
1: Yeah, high 20s. But they'd be lovable and they'd be plucky (laughs) and they'd do a lot for the community.
3: (laughs) They would do so much for the community. And the guys
2: from the early twentieth century would only be playing in black and white, and they would have very exaggerated throwing and running motions, which I think would be right. would be a, a that could a hindrance. confuse. No, yeah, that, could, that could confuse the modern guys.
1: Yeah, it's could. true.
3: It's
2: true. But
1: control cells would go through the roof as this music played in the background. It
3: <laughs> <laughs> would catch on by the second inning of game one, and then would kind of cruise through the rest of the hundred. Yeah, Ben
2: Lindbergh at the Baseball Prospectus also did a uh, looking for the iconic replacement player post which uh, I think came to similar conclusions. Some good names on that list of, of sub-replacement player players. So that's worth checking out.
3: Can you give us the names, or are you just going to tell us? That... I think I think Chippy McGar is my favorite on that list. I
1: think the concept of walk-up music would just freak out the guys from the 19th century. <laughs> They'd be done.
2: <laughs> what about the scoreboard? Oh, my God. Those 19th century guys. One, one look at the jumbotron. Moving on, and they would run back into the uh, into the corn stalks.
3: Moving on, here's a question from uh, Chris from Baltimore. The Question is uh,
0: related to Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh, He talked about uh, the need for the U.S. to have a relegation and promotion program for MLS to actually gain relevance and to produce a, uh, I guess, a quality uh, team uh, to field for the uh, World Cup. Wanted to get your take on that. Thanks.
3: I don't want to uh, take this out on you, Chris from Baltimore. But the promotion and relegation question, I think, is is a perpetual one and one that I think is not super applicable to American sports. Um, It's a little more interesting with MLS because that's um, how it works in soccer around the world. And there is this perpetual question, perpetual question number two, of how should MLS shape itself? Should it be more American or more international? Should the calendar be the same as the FIFA calendar? Should you know there be promotion and relegation? And Fusion did a three-part series on this earlier this year. And I agreed with the conclusion that just like with other sports, that this is really a solution looking for a problem. In the US, it just doesn't fit in with what MLS needs to be doing right now. The sport is trying to grow to try to add new teams. They're trying to get more cities to have the kinds of stadiums that they deem to be appropriate for a top-tier soccer league in the U.S. And just, like, busting down the teams that they've already established into a second tier and then promoting teams that maybe don't have the market or the interest in soccer up to a first tier, it just is not really the right um, model for how that league needs to grow right now. And just because everywhere around the world does it doesn't mean that it's right for the U.S. And I think that there is just a sense, particularly in soccer, about an anxiety that the U.S. isn't doing it right or isn't isn't as advanced or developed. And I think that soccer fans need to get over that a little bit.
1: I would also say MLS kind of has a version of de facto, not relegation, but promotion. I mean, the Orlando team does really well in the NASL. They draw a lot. Now, a version of that team's in MLS. In New York, the Cosmos, you know, a lot of people said the Cosmos should have been the second New York team instead of this NYFC. I went to a game in Yankee Stadium a couple weeks ago, by the way. But of course, you know, the big uh, Middle Eastern oil shakes come in And they say, hey, we'd like to have this team. And they team up with Steinbrenners and therefore they have the team. But, you know, if the Cosmos do really well and show that they could draw in what essentially is the uh, minor leagues, the top minor league of American soccer, they might get a New York team. It's not out of the realm of possibility. I don't know about sending teams down, especially sending teams down just for a poor record. If they show that they can, you know, draw, they should be allowed to stay or at least build their franchise. But it's closer in MLS than any other American sports league.
2: I agree with Mike. And that's a really good point, Mike, that we have that sort of built into the system now. And the, the main differences are one, tradition, two, the size of our markets in the United States, and three, the cost of entry into our professional sports. We have so many big cities that to relegate franchises, existing franchises, to a second tier is just not economically feasible. Um, it just doesn't work that way. The cost of entry is so high, particularly in a new league like ma- Major League Soccer, to tell uh, the owners of a franchise that have ponied up $100 million or more to start playing in a league that they're going down to play you know, teams from Tulsa or Charleston the next year just will not fly legally or practically.
3: Well, kind of the leader of the America-you're-doing-it-wrong contingent is Jürgen Klinsman. He's talked kind of ad nauseum about how in so many different ways that the U.S. needs to be like Europe. And he said this about promotion relegation. I'm a deep believer in promotion relegation systems. I just wish that we had a system in place where all the young players and all the players in general know that there's the next higher level and there's a lower level and think if I play a bad season then that lower level is waiting for me if I play a very good season there's the chance to go up and play at whatever you describe then as the highest level and that is just such bullshit like if a player plays really well on a bad team then the bad team might still be bad and if the player plays badly on the good team then you know the good team will still be good it's not at all reflective of how promotion and relegation works. I'm not a huge follower of club soccer. My understanding is that, for example, in England, a team gets promoted because a Russian oligarch buys them, and then they import lots of great, expensive players to the team. And it's not because a particular in a particular year, like the left back had a bad year. And so like the fortunes of teams and players are not, tied up that way that's a fiction
2: well they used to be and that's why promotion and relegation made sense it also makes sense when you look at the the table in English soccer in the Premier League how many big cities are represented I mean London has multiple teams Manchester's a fairly good sized city but you start looking at some of the smaller cities that are able to support a sport at its highest level we don't have that here it's just not practical
3: we don't need to be like uh, everywhere else we're good America we got our we got our thing Let's embrace it. I did argue here, for here. internal here, here. promotion and relegation in the
2: NBA, and I maintain, I stand by that argument for restructuring the NBA.
3: Dumb idea.
1: I believe, no. I believe in internal uh, promotion and relegation in my body. If the kidneys fail, push them down low. The lungs, <laughs> working overtime, give them a promotion up to the neck.
3: <laughs> Rob Daniels from Greensboro, North Carolina, wondering, now that we have Smoothie King Center... What is the next absurd corporate-named venue in American sports? I'm thinking maybe Orange Julius Coliseum. What do you all think?
1: Well, I mean, I can't believe it's not soccer. That could be the I can't believe it's not yogurt. People could do a lot with the name they've got. The uh, Epilady, I think the Epilady Arena would be pretty good. What about the looks like a pump, feels like a sneaker? Does that have an actual brand name or is that just the best slogan ever? But I think that that could fit in well with the world of sports. You know, the thing about stadium names and the whole argument over, should we call it the new name? What about the old name? I call it Mile High. I don't want to call it Invesco. And then the counter argument is, oh yes, but some of these venerable stadiums like Pilot Field is named after a brand. It's not being named after a brand. It's being named after a different different brand every other year and I'll tell you if the sleep train arena sustains and it won't because the Kings I think it's done already but if that was there for 12 years 15 years everyone would find it quite lovely that they played in the sleep train arena same with the quickens lone arena same with the gee your hair smells terrific arena too bad cat fancy have full has folded you know what that's why they folded they never they never named an arena after themselves
3: So you can see kind of the difference in monetary outlay if you look at the names of stadiums and arenas versus the names of college football bowl games. It costs a little bit less to sponsor a college football bowl game. And so you get things like the famous Idaho Potato Bowl, the San Diego County Credit Union Poinsettia Bowl, the Zaxby's Heart of Dallas Bowl, the Duck Commander Independence Bowl. Uh, what, What else do we got here? Ticket City Cactus Bowl.
1: What about the Bitcoin one that the used Bitcoin. to be Beef mm-hmm. Grady's?
3: Yeah. yeah. Popeye's Bahamas Bowl, the Bitcoin uh, St. Petersburg Bowl. So we need to get arena sponsorship to be more affordable so we can get some of our more beloved American small businesses like Popeye's and Bitcoin <laughs> to, to uh, be the namers of arenas and stadiums. Don't you agree, Stefan? The
1: Silk Road This Never Happened Bowl. The Ashley Madison Web
3: Browser Erase Ball. (laughs) (laughs) The Incognito Ball.
1: Hi, guys. This is John Doyle from Summersworth, New Hampshire. All four of our major professional sports
3: leagues use
1: the same format for
2: deciding a champion, champion of one conference against the champion of another conference, or league. But don't you think it's
1: time that
2: one of them at least experimented with
1: interconference heating and give the potential for any two teams at
2: the beginning of the season to meet in the championship? And
1: if so, which league should be the first to do it? I would say NBA, because some of the rivalries
2: there are not as traditional as in the other three leagues, or at least the playoff format tradition. And if it was Golden State and the LA Clippers in the NBA Finals, would anybody really care? Thank you. As I said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, conferences and divisions are pretty dumb in the modern age. The idea of uh, the champions of two leagues or conferences playing each other dates back to a time when they were totally separate in, in most cases. The AFL versus the NFL, those were totally separate leagues. They played in the, in the AFL-NFL championship game. It wasn't the Super Bowl right at the beginning. The National Hockey League didn't have divisions until the league expanded beyond six teams. In 1967, it was the original six in one division. And then the six expansion teams in the other division, Vancouver was in the East after it was added in 1970. It's a little sidebar there. Um, And then the NHL went to conferences in 1974. The NBA began as the Basketball Association of America. They actually had East and West divisions and the champions of the two divisions were matched in a first-round series. And then the four runners-up played off to determine who would be the other finalist. which obviously makes no sense. They are anachronistic. The idea that we have conferences and divisions is anachronistic. I won't rehash the argument I made a couple of weeks ago. But I think it is time for leagues to reconsider how they group teams and determine who gets to play each other in the finals. We're in an age of, of analytics and of determinative performance. And having two teams that are not that have not proven to be the two you know, of the better teams or the best teams conferring some advantage in whatever playoff structure you have is stupid.
3: Mike, John, our, uh, our caller suggested that the NBA would be the first league to make this switch or was the league that should be the first to make the switch. Do you think that makes sense?
1: Well, yeah, the NBA has become like, anytime someone says something innovative might happen, it's going to happen in the NBA, to the credit of Adam Silver and the NBA. But it's become like the Nordic countries with experimenting with any form of prison reform. You know, what's the line between anachronism and tradition? And also, it's not just tradition, because that's the way it's always been done. There are a number of good things to having the structure. In individual sports, tennis you exceed the tournament to try to get the number one to play the number two at the end I uh, suppose college basketball works more or less along those lines though not too much thought is given to which teams uh, make the final four I don't think that that actually does yield you know the two behemoths who we always wanted to be in the finals more than the structure of NFL NBA or NHL and maybe that's just because of uh, the one and done tournament there's a lot of upsets but I liked it I guess you could say the era when this was most necessary is when the NFC was so dominant and it was basically implausible that an AFC team would win uh, late 80s, early 90s so that NFC championship game inevitably between the Cowboys and the 49ers, everyone who paid attention knew that that was essentially the championship and that came true but that wasn't bad. First of all, the Super Bowl is going to be the Super Bowl. It has its Mm -hmm. own hype so you get a bad Super Bowl game. I mean, great You, you know, that thing's late and by 9.30 you go to bed and they made the Championship games, all the better. I also think there was a virtue too. First, there were the Pistons, and then there were the Bulls, and then there was Cleveland in the mix, and you always knew that was the structure, and you have to go through the guy who beat you before, and there was a changing of the guard. It's been less rigid lately, but th- there was a real benefit to that. And I also like the fact that when you know you're in a conference and, you know, the Knicks can't. Go to the championship game until they beat the Heat. You get specific guys for that specific inevitable series with your rival. All those things are good. And seeding a tournament where you just hope to have the number one and two, even if they both play in the state of California, I don't know. I don't think that that's as appealing as all the uh, virtues of everything I've just. Let me laid make one out.
2: quick point before Josh talks, and that the leagues are responsible for flattening the appearance and the reality of how their games are played. I mean, baseball adding so much interleague play means that the distinction between the National League and the American League is evaporated. So it doesn't have as much meaning. I mean, the leagues have diluted the notion of rivalry and of distinction of the reason to have separate two separate groups vying for a championship. They're
3: just not willing to go all the way with it right. quite yet. I mean, baseball still does have the distinction of the DH, but within the next... Five or ten years, that will probably evaporate too, and there'll be the DH in both leagues. Um, but you know, I wrote a couple of years ago that what we really want as fans, and I was writing this about college football, is that you want to see the matchup that you want to see that year. So sometimes you want to see Texas play USC because they're the two undefeated teams, and nobody else is really involved. And the only thing that could happen in a playoff is like getting those teams knocked off, and you don't see. The matchup you want that happened a little bit with Kentucky um, getting knocked off in the Final Four this year, but it's it's not possible to have like you know a bunch of technocrats in uh, you know the league office deciding this year we're going to have seven teams in the playoffs and they will play in this manner. Like you have to come up with a fairly rigid structure. Um, but I think that's a smart point, Stefan, is that if you do flatten the distinction between conferences and and between divisions, but still maintain that rigidity for the playoffs, then you're not really willing to reckon with the the consequences of what you've done with a regular season. I think that that's a mistake for these leagues. But
1: well, good question. Who, who asked the question? John Doyle. Good job out of you, Johnny.
0: Hi, this is Julie Herman calling from Cincinnati. Long time, first time. Um, the All-Star Game is going to be in Cincinnati this year and I see that Pete Rose was hired by Fox Sports to be a commentator. It seems like MLB seems to make use of Pete when it suits them, but they still won't let him in the Hall of Fame. What do you think about that? Thanks.
3: I'll have to dispute the premise of that question a little bit. Fox Sports is not Major League Baseball, and they were the ones who decided to hire Pete Rose, and baseball said, sure, okay, go ahead with that, but they don't really have the authority to tell Fox Sports even though Fox has a license to broadcast baseball games Major League Baseball can't tell them who to hire and so it, this isn't the same as Major League Baseball hiring Pete Rose to work in the commissioner's office or something like that so i think if MLB had its druthers Pete Rose just would go away and would never be on your television set so i don't think that they're being hypocritical or you know saying oh you can do X, but you can't, you know, be in that Hall of Fame. Um, I guess a separate question is, should Fox hire P. Rose? And I think the question is obviously yes. And, you know, maybe he'll have interesting things to say, maybe not, but there's no reason not to try him out as a broadcaster. And, um, you know, I don't know if either one of you guys want to talk about whether P. Rose has served his time.
1: So as I talk to you from a street in New York City. I just want to say that, yeah, Fox didn't need Pete Rose's permission But I suspect that if someone wants to rebroadcast any part of a Major League Baseball telecast with Pete Rose in it, they will have a hard time obtaining express written permission. This is one of those things that I think bizarrely will never go away because Pete Rose won't admit harm and baseball has dug its heels in. But I think just what's been reported, the circumstances tell you all you need to know. This is a punishment that's gone on too long because of stubbornness. Pete Rose won't apologize. He was offered. He could, not fact be reinstated. If he said he did wrong, he said I won't do wrong. So what's the Hall of Fame? Is it a tool of uh, Major League Baseball's punishment arm? You know, or is it to honor those who are famous and accomplished. Obviously, his accomplishments are there. Big deal. You put him in the hall. You have a note. You say you bet on baseball. Everyone's happy except anyone who really uh, has critical thinking. They didn't care in
2: the first place. Well, the new commissioner, Rob Manfred, said that he actually, I mean, and who knows what this means, that he does plan to give Pete Rose's case a full and fresh look. And that just could be him saying that um, to sort of cover himself because Fox is a major league baseball partner and baseball is going to get criticized by some people. I don't know who exactly for having this association with Pete Rose, even if it's an indirect one, Pete Rose never struck me as a very good talker. So having him as the next as baseball's Charles Barkley seems like a, a stretch, but Hey, the Fox people aren't dumb and the people that put these shows together aren't, uh, aren't awful. So they, there has gotta be, there's gotta be something to what Pete Rose is saying about, Contemporary baseball that made Fox willing to give him a, uh, a spot in the booth. My favorite part of the story was a little bit uh, where Rose explains his daily schedule, which allows him plenty of time to watch baseball and, and be, be up on the sport. The story says that Rose signs autographs every day from noon to 4.30 in the Art of Music store at the shops at Mandalay Bay. He then goes mm-hmm. home, often with a salad from Subway, and watches a full slate of games starting in the East, and ending in the West.
3: Mandalay. I like that, pronun- that alternate Did pronunciation. alternate. I say Mandalay? <laughs> Mandalay. yes.
0: Hi, this is Adam from Chicago. And my question is, uh, how do I get my son,
2: my five-year-old son, into baseball? And before that, how do I get myself into baseball? Because I really try, and I really want to be into it,
1: and I just can't do it. Maybe he works in the Mandalay Bay and he sees Pete Rose every day. And he's like, I'd love to have something to talk to this guy about. <laughs> I, know, I know he has an attractive haircut, but I don't know why he's famous. I would say don't get your son or yourself into baseball unless you're drawn into baseball. But if you really want to get yourself into baseball, Kung Fu Panda is a great gateway drug for kids. Uh, his name is Kung Fu Panda, and he's kind of panda-ish. And then You're talking about pa- love-
3: Pablo Sandoval, the baseball player nicknamed Kung Fu Panda, not the actual movie Kung Fu Panda.
1: That's right. <laughs> and kids like uniforms and kids like winners, and so if you get them excited about this concept called the World Series, it does have a very good name. It is called the World Series. Now, if you get them too into it, they'll want to stay up and it will ruin their lives, so that's not that good. Also, going to a game is always very fun, but don't expect right off the bat that he's going to want to watch even more than one or two innings of the game. And maybe luckily you don't know that much about the game, so you can't say, okay, sit here. I want you to watch the positioning of the left fielder. You just talk about what balls and strikes are and if he hit it very hard. And then in most major league parks, there's a fun little thing. Like in uh, Citibank, there's an apple when they hit a home run. Kids will love that. Up in Minnesota, the two twins shake hands on the scoreboard. Kids love that. It's only the Yankees that have no whimsy and no fun. A little harder to get into. Their uh, workaround was they always won the World Series. Now that that's not true, I don't know what's going to happen.
2: Our caller's son is only five. So you're right, Mike. Watching the actual game is a long shot. But I would suggest, you mentioned only major league parks, I would suggest taking him to a minor league game. And I think that you'll get more into the game because it's far more intimate, it's not as loud, there aren't as many people, um, there's enough distraction for him, there's bound to be a great mascot, maybe in an old mascot uniform, looks kind of grungy, and it's a little bit scary, that may appeal to your five-year-old.
3: I just don't understand why you need, just want to emphasize, there's no, need, there's no national law you know, just because it's the national pastime, that's just an expression. There, there's no forced conscription into baseball fandom. So if you're not into it, no need for your son to be into it. There are a lot of other activities that you can do. Rocketry, for example. But if you have some great reason and you really have to do it, you know, for me, I was really into baseball. And that led me to get into reading because I wanted to read about it. and led me to get into math because I wanted to follow the numbers. But you can do it with a glass in the on. reverse way, uh, too. So if your son is, like, really into reading, then maybe give him books about baseball. Catch with a glass arm, I If your son is really into math, then point out all the statistics that you can calculate using a a baseball box score. If it's science, then you can look up videos uh, about how a curveball curves. If it's architecture, then, you know, you can get a book that shows all the different stadiums and all their, you know, how they were built. And if it's cars, then you can talk about the history of bullpen cars, And how the uh, Mariners had one that was shaped like a tugboat. If he's in the boats, you can talk about how the Mariners had a bullpen car that was shaped like a tugboat. So I didn't realize, Josh, that baseball
2: offered so much.
3: It does offer a whole
2: heck of a lot. If he wants to be be entertained, though, take him to a soccer game. More action.
1: You know what, guys? We have been we have been speculating about what gets a five year old into baseball. Let's ask a six year old. Once a recent five year old, Emmett. Why did you get interested in baseball? Because it's home runs, and because I like it, and because it's Kung Fu Panda. All right, there you go. Home runs, he likes it, and Kung Fu Panda.
3: Kung Fu Panda, you're right. That's a great father, father of the year. All right, let's uh, let's <laughs> let's end there. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.